Hey y'all, thank you for joining the BG Waterfowl Podcast. I'm your host, Zach Hopper. going on guys it is a gorgeous day here in memphis tennessee only a balming 100 degrees with a 110 degree heat index so it is by every means miserable outside but to take your mind off the heat i've got a pretty cool guest today got sean weaver with me today and um sean reached out to me through instagram um just started talking about the podcast and wanted to come on and so we are just now meeting for the first time, so you guys can hear about him as I hear about him. So, Sean, why don't you go ahead and give us a little introduction about your your life in the in the waterfowl world? You bet. Well, first off, thanks for having me, man. For sure. Appreciate it. Um, yeah, my name Sean Weaver, obviously, and uh, I work for Meat Eater as kind of their their duck guy, their duck nerd, as I would like to call myself more often than not, and. Uh, you know, I, I do a lot of the, the media around waterfowl there, writing articles and doing a show called Duck Lore and and things like that. So I got you. Now Duck Lore is that is that a podcast show or like a film show? Duck Lore is a um is a YouTube series okay. on the Meat Eater YouTube channel. And it's uh you know, it's we did 12 episodes worth last year. Uh, actually, the new six episodes just started running this week. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, 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 man, it's really based around, honestly, being kind of a relatable freelance waterfowl hunting show. Right. You know, uh, use that a little lightly. You know, we do go hunt with some folks that really kind of have areas keyed in and dialed in. But a lot of the time, you know, we're just also showing up places and winging it and figuring it out on our own, um, I'd say more often than not. And, you know, not to get too into the weeds on that subject, but I feel like that was something that was kind of missing from mainstream waterfowl media for a while. Yeah. Was that, uh, you know, guys just going and doing it how everyone else does it. Right. Um. And and that was kind of the emphasis. That's kind of what I wanted to do with the show. I got you. Yeah, you can only watch so many YouTube videos of people shooting ducks out of a blind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, and man, it's like uh, th- this is really getting into how the the sausage is made. But when when you know that guys are going on a hunt with a you know some really kick butt outfitter you know before you even watch the show that they're going to shoot the heck out of them right and if, if that's what you want to see that's great but if you like kind of the story right the hero's journey of seeing how the seeing how the hunt actually unfolds and seeing shit go real wrong right <laughs> um you know that's not always the way to do it I and mean, man that's and, the reality of it and, that, and that, that's the reality of I it mean, exactly cause... I think we were talking to, uh, man, we were talking to somebody on here not too long ago about that. I mean, that is duck hunting. It's it's not sunshine and rainbows. I mean, the the few days a year that you get that are sunshine and rainbows, like it, it's not because you're per se good at it. It's because that ninety percent of the time it is sleeting in your face and not pulling the trigger and you know killing just one bird or something like that, getting stuck in the mud. Uh-huh. I mean it. it that is the reality of it, and and that's what I would prefer to see is somebody that's, I guess, kind of like me because I grew up on public land, still hunt. Yep. I'd say 75% of the time on public land. Um, yep. You know, like you said, y'all going freelance. We're headed up to North Dakota. Our first filmed episode of the year for Buck Gardner will be a freelance hunt in North Dakota. Um, so really excited about that. Nice, nice. Yeah, Um good luck man you know that's one of those places that uh 
it is all about what you put into it, right? Right. Now with how many guys go to Canada or go to North Dakota every year and can't go to Canada now, right? Right. Um, uh, you know, North Dakota is getting even more pressure and guys every year. Oh, yeah. And if you put in the work, you, you'll get on it. But, man, you got to put in that work. Right. We got uh, – I believe we've got three separate vehicles going, so I hope that kind of helps us spread out and find the – and find the X, you know. Um, yeah. Because, I mean, there's no doubt the Ducks are there. Uh, we'll be there in late October, so they most yep. definitely will be there. And it's just about, I mean, from what I've been told, the permission, the electronically posted lands, the yep. if it's the same owner posted on one side of the road and the other side of the road's posted too, if he owns that part. I mean, it's, it's a lot of stuff that for a first-timer, um, you know, luckily we've got – uh, a couple guys that have been up there before that are kind of going to, I guess, know the rules just a little bit better. But I'm, I'm nervous, but I'm, man, I'm super excited. I cannot stand one more day of this weather. I, I'm ready to get, I'm ready to <laughs> Dude, freeze you guys my have butt had, off. You guys have had a brutal summer down there. It has been uh, the hottest summer I can remember. And, I mean, people are like, climate change. I was like, well, last year, I can't remember too many days that it was over 90 degrees down here. So, I mean, you right. tell me. But I guess we, uh, we're we paying for it for having a mild summer last year. It is, mm-hmm. it is scorching. That's not kidding. I mean, my – Yeah, I was talking to go ahead, man. Clay Newcomb from – sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you there. I was talking to Clay Newcomb from uh, Arkansas – and he, he said it's just been relentless. It's been week after week of just record hot, record hot, record hot. It has been. And, man, the lack of rain, I pray for these farmers, man. I mean, I, I can I can count on one hand how many times it's rained probably in the last two months. So, I mean, if they've got irrigation systems, you know, they're fine. But, I mean, my grass in my front yard is burning up, right, because it's not getting any rain. So, I mean, it definitely – Definitely looking forward to some some fall weather. Um, I mean, just one day where it's not – you can't stand outside for, for 10 seconds without, you know, getting your shirt soaking wet. <laughs> I mean, I, I'll take anything <laughs> yeah. at this point. So, Sean, where are you from? You're from the north part of the country, correct? Yes, sir. Yep, uh, South Dakota. Nice. Well, not originally from South Dakota, but that's where I've lived for 10 years, so – Okay, do you do a lot of your hunting in South Dakota? Yeah, you know, so kind of my history is a a really cool one and, you know, a blessed one for sure. Um, right out of high school, year after high school, I should say, moved to South Dakota for college and, uh, you know, fell in love with the waterfowling there. Obviously, I'd heard stories about how good it was. And, you know, part of that, too, is the year I actually, um, before I moved up there, they estimated that one-third of the continent's mallard population was holed up in a 100-square-mile area in northeast South Dakota because they had so much naturally flooded corn from heavy fall rains. Wow. And, yeah, (laughs) wow is right. One third of the continent's mallards in only a 10 by 10 square mile, you know, 10 miles by 10 miles, 100 square miles, right? I mean, I couldn't and even imagine. Can't imagine. And, you know, I had some friends that were in on all that, in on the hunting up there. Right. And they said they'd drive around shooting paintball guns out the window just to flush birds out of the corn. And if they didn't flush 50,000, they weren't going to hunt it. Wow. I mean, I guess you, <laughs> you have to get them flushed up if it's standing corn to even see that, right? Right, exactly. Yeah, they couldn't see them. You know, they could roll down windows and hear them, but they had to flush them out of the corn to actually know what was in there. That is insane. I, I hope we do and, get on some corn when we go up there. That's that's kind of the the. I guess when you think of North Dakota, you think of. Um, in my opinion, you think of maybe a little flooded spot in a cornfield, like ideally. Just a little mm-hmm. little water hole in a cornfield, so I can't. you know, and North Dakota, North Dakota gets some of that, right? North Dakota gets, but kind of North Dakota even gets more of like the kind of what you would call sheet water, right? 
in a in a barley field or a wheat field, right? Yeah, Sometimes yeah. pea fields. South Dakota tends to get a little bit more of that, like naturally flooded corn. Yeah, um, they both get it, but South Dakota seems to get more of it, and it's all about you know one heavy fall rain in September somewhere. You know, you get one thunderstorm that just sits and and burns burns gas over one spot for you know a couple hours and you might have a couple mile area with a bunch of flooded corn it's amazing how fast those ducks find it man every year i get on you know one spot like that where you might have to drive 200 miles to find it but like it's worth it if you do right yeah i mean i remember i guess north dakota if you're saying it's like wheat i guess it's pretty much like saskatchewan because that's where that's where I was in early October last year, and I mean, there's nothing but barley and wheat up there. It seems like, um, mm-hmm. you, as you well know, if you're from up there, there was no water last year. Like it was right. dry as a bone. I couldn't believe it when we were driving through North Dakota, driving through these just bare potholes, and you were like, "My gosh, like where are the ducks at? Like how did they even make it through?" But fortunately, from all the reports up there, it was a very wet spring. So hoping that that, you know, produced a pretty good hatch and hopefully North Dakota, South Dakota is going to be pretty loaded this year. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was a wet spring. It's been a dry summer again, you know, relatively speaking, um, kind of few crazy wind events and wind storms and like derecho, they call them events that have come ripping through, but you know, the, the nesting this year should have, certainly been better it'll be interesting to see what the actual formal counts waterfowl counts are right. when those come out yeah. but, you know the pond, the pond counts were up huge in north dakota and um frankly man i think we dodged a bullet as waterfowl if we'd had another year of what the drought was like last year you know we could have been looking at moderate or restricted seasons pretty soon it's um, insane to think about that one year could have, I mean, changed one you know, as long as we know it, really. Yeah. Us young guys, um, you know, we've been spoiled. It's been a liberal, it's been a liberal season in the Mississippi and Central Flyways for, you know, at least 25 years. I'd say as long as I've been um, duck hunting, it's been, it's been just about the same. They've, They've restricted, like the pintail went from two to one, but then again, the speck in Arkansas went from two to three. So, right, it's, like you said, pretty liberal. Yeah, but, you know, we've never had to go through that reduction, let's say the Mississippi Flyway, right, of knocking that season from 60 days down to 45 or down to even 30, right. knocking mallard limits down to three or down to two. You know, we've never had to go through that. And, um, you know, a lot of – a lot of biologist friends of mine and and guys in the know in the conservation world were pretty dang worried last fall, man, that like if we didn't get a massive, massive change of moisture this spring that, we, you know, we we're going to be in in 2023 looking at restricted season. Man, that is but, insane. Like, I guess um, uh, every everyday you know, guy, you, you don't know that stuff's even going on. Like down here in Arkansas or – Technically, I'm in Tennessee right now, but, I mean, just down here in the south, like, I mean, you know, you always have a pretty wet winter. You know, you always have your, your places to go, and you just – everything's normally all the all the same down here. There's always water to hunt down here, and, yeah, I guess you just never right. – it kind of goes to the wayside thinking about up there how, you know, two years of a, a really extreme drought could potentially have such a harsh effect even as far down as Arkansas. So, I mean, yeah, and you know, man, that for me brings up a larger conversation that I would love to see conservation wise us move more towards, um, you know, as waterfowlers is, you know, everyone kind of has this tertiary understanding of that. Yeah, the ducks nest up north and they come down south. Um, But I don't think, you know, certainly plenty of guys, but I don't think all the duck hunters in the south quite grasp how much even our farming practices are changing and influencing waterfowl numbers and uh 
you know, how much damage is done by, let's say, um, some haying programs or loss of CRP or tiling or tillage or, you know, so many right. different practices that are, that are kind of becoming, um, you know, will have been the norm for a long time. Uh, but, not, you know, just how much of a detrimental effect they're having on waterfowl populations in the long term. You know, Iowa is famous for, you look at Iowa and, and you see nothing but corn, right? And you see nothing but tiled fields. Right. Well, Iowa's lost over 90% of its wetlands over, you know, over the course of modern farming. Right. And you can only imagine what it was for a nesting. You can like, you can only imagine the ducks it produced. And now it doesn't produce hardly any ducks with the exception of small areas in North central and Northwest Iowa. And, you know, Eastern South Dakota, the Katota Prairie, which is this beautiful, like godsend of a duck nesting habitat is headed the same way. If we don't like, get a firm grasp on how important grasslands are to duck nesting. And uh, I don't think guys always quite, quite understand how big a deal that really is. Yeah. I mean, for, for the guy in the South, I mean, it really equates to what farming practices did and are doing to the turkey population. Um, I mean, the, the nesting for hens um, and pastures, for say, like in the thick grass, like you know, they're getting closer and closer to these uh, to these fence rows and stuff like that, and they're and they're completely bush hogging and doing all this stuff, yep. and and we're seeing the result in the turkey population. But even before then, the quail population, the quail population. Yeah, my, my grandparents used to tell me about how many quail used to be down here. Well, now that, like I said, the farming practices, they're just bush hogging and getting so close to these fence lines and the, the quail are gone. They're, I mean, almost extinct down here. I mean, they're, yeah. Really, it's... Quail's a real bummer, man. Cause you just wonder, you know, I, I, I've said this before. Um, we look back now at let's say market hunting or DDT and bald eagles and, you know, just eggs in general we look back at those things and go, man, did we come close to just like screwing it all up? Mm -hmm. And I wonder what it is we're doing now that guys 40 years from now will be looking back at us and saying, man, you guys really screwed the quail into oblivion by doing X. Because right. it seems like there's so many things that are hurting the quail right now, right? Yeah, I mean. It's like. Less you can just, predator control. I mean, farming right. practices. I mean, everything. Yep. It's yep. But I mean, that's such a negative thing to think about. But I mean, it's true. It's reality. But I mean, I would say if it wasn't for the for the North American waterfowler, I mean, we really wouldn't even be keeping our heads above water as far as a waterfowl population. I mean, the dollars that we spend. Um, that funds so many wetland conservation projects and things like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm sure we could be doing more, but like you said, in 40 years, you know, we'll look back and be like, dang, we should have done X and just wish we could know now. Because like you said, I mean, since I started duck hunting, mm -hmm. even, you know, a decade or more ago, I've, I mean, I used to be terrible. I'd go out there with a handful of decoys, not know how to blow a <laughs> duck call and, I was walking out with my limit because there was just ducks. You didn't have right. to really know what you were doing. They were just here. Like January, like there were mallards here and you didn't really have to worry about trying real, real hard. And now it's right. like, I mean, if we get one limit out of a group of five guys, we're, we're pumped. And it's, I mean, you can, and you can blame it on the droughts and stuff like that. But overall, the numbers are, I mean, it, it, it's looking it's looking scary, and especially for you know guys in the industry like us, it's you know we're looking at jobs. You know, it's even bigger mm. than just the hunting season. It's we're looking at jobs. So, yeah, that's. Mm. I mean, but here we are spreading the awareness about it. That you know, if you well, can do you know, yeah, the easy thing to do, you know, at the bare minimum, right? The easy thing to start off with is 
buying a membership to both BU and Delta every year and getting yourself a coon fight predator call and, you know, shooting the heck out of raccoons when you get the chance, yep. make yourself some nice hats and, <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I mean that at the bare minimum, right? You start there, buy an extra duck stamp every year, buy your membership to DU and Delta. I mean that alone, you know, a uh, high tide raises all boats, right? And and if if we had, let's say, you know, let, go go say a extravagant out of control number. Right now we have forty five million ducks, roughly. Let's say we had a hundred million ducks in the country. Um, all these like kind of nitpicking, blaming each other conversations about, oh, the guy's hot cropping up north or the guy's doing this in the wintering grounds in the south or, you know, they have too long a season or they shoot too many birds. All that would kind of go out the window if we had more ducks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, totally. And, so I think we focus on how can we make more ducks, right? Right, and I think regardless of the opinions on on Delta waterfowl or Ducks Unlimited, like on in the grand scheme of things, they are helping. I mean, it's not like they are doing anything to hurt the numbers. Now, I mean, they definitely have different practices of how they go about doing things, and. Yep. You know, it, it, there are speculations and I mean, I mean, I'm sure there's even hard facts about, you know, things going on up north that are affecting the hunting down south. But in reality, I mean, the duck numbers are hurting and I mean, they're doing nothing but helping. And, you know, you can feel however you want, but that's the reality of it. If you care that much that if you want to take your kids hunting in in 20 years, like we got to start now, you know. Or start two yeah, years if, ago. You know, if in the market hunting era that the everyday duck hunter, if if during the market hunting era the argument had been just at the bare minimum, those guys are shooting more than their fill. Mm-hmm. Or those guys are, you know, baiting for birds and we can't bait here or, you know, whatever it is, right? Like if that had just been the extent of the conversation we probably wouldn't have a canvas back anymore. But everybody, both market hunters and sportsmen alike, you know, just the everyday guy with a double barrel and market hunters all realized that there was just not enough ducks, that there was not the ducks there had been before. And, you know, all kind of came together and a little bit forced at the hand of the government, right? But they all came together and said, yeah, we got to save the ducks. And uh, there was a huge movement before market hunting was even outlawed. You know, you you go read some of Nash Buckingham's writings. He was writing about the demise of North American waterfowling well before you actually saw all the rules and regulations on it. And, um, you know, I I think it would be great of us. I think it'd be our generation's great conservation movement for us to say, okay, what can we look at and see is negatively affecting quail and turkeys and ducks and what else have you, you know, and say, how can we change it? How can we make it better? For sure. I think you're already seeing that push in turkey hunting because of how poor it has gotten in the last, I mean, even five years. I mean, you're looking at, People, they're like, we got to ban decoys. We've got to lower bag limits. Like, we've got to regulate, you know, out-of-state hunters. You know, all this kind of stuff is just, over the last, I mean, just few years has been, you know, they're pushing the envelope for it. And some things have already been done, like in Mississippi. um, They're restricting the out-of-state hunters for the first few weeks of season. So, I mean, that's, Mm. I mean, we're seeing the effect on turkeys. I mean, it's. Ducks, right. I mean, if you look close enough, you see it. But if you're just the everyday duck hunter, I mean, that just does it, right. you know, on the on every other weekend, per se. I mean, you know, you, you're you know, not going to notice it until they're like, well, here's your 30-day season and here's your three-duck limit. Um, right. And that's, yeah. that, you know, and, if it comes and, to that, you know, you know, maybe it'll be better for my kids. You know, that I mean, you just got to look at the yeah. positives there, but mm-hmm. definitely need to be doing And I stuff. do think everyone needs to do kind of their own, 
do their own research and and read up a little bit, listen to a couple podcasts, listen to you know some of the stuff I've done with Delta, and and do a little of their own research on the absolute explosion of meso predators across the landscape, everywhere from Mississippi all the way through North Dakota. You know, right? Yeah, it's... there wasn't even raccoons recorded in like you know no one can find written recording of raccoons being in north dakota before the 1950s and now they're spread all across the whole state right right and you know you you also look at how many people trapped or ran dogs or whatever else on raccoons for you know all the way up till the 80s and then the crash of the trapping market beautifully coincides with uh you know, explosion of nasal predators across the landscape. And I'm not, that's not the whole problem. It's for yeah. sure not the whole problem. Yeah. But heck, it's something you can go do with your kids and, and have a good time doing it. Right. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, going shooting raccoons is kind of like a tradition. I mean, you just, if you see a raccoon, sure. a, a possum, a armadillo, you just, you just shoot them. I mean, it's not because you don't care about them. I mean, it's because you care about, you know they're getting in your turkey nest, and they're they're causing huge problems. So mm-hmm. it's not just because you're yep. reckless; just don't have any care about life whatsoever. But no, yeah, it's not that at all. So right? you, it's you, it's not just it's not like uh, it's not like I at least in my opinion I don't look at predators as like uh, you know how people as they settled the west looked at them. Right? right I right. don't look at them like we need to exterminate them all. It's yeah. just like, man, Manage there is a lot of raccoons out there. <laughs> it is. I mean, I mean, even, man, like, I didn't, I, I, like, where I live, I live literally a couple hundred yards from the Mississippi River levee and mm-hmm. hardly have ever seen deer. I mean, even this morning I saw a dead raccoon on the side of the road. I was like, I, mean, I didn't even know there was, like, really any wildlife technically right here on the levee <laughs> yeah. because, I mean, the city of Memphis is literally – like you could, if you walked up on the levee, you can just look across and see it. So, I mean, for sure. But I know you mentioned something about Delta Waterfowl. You did some work with them. Are you by chance going to be at their banquet next weekend? Or not banquet, but their uh Yeah, their yeah, expo? at the expo. Yeah. Yep, I'll be there. Man, you've got to stop by the booth. We will be there, and well, there will be a bunch of us there. There's at least five or six of us at our booth that's going to be there. We're yeah, great, really man. looking I'll, forward I'll, to it. I'll be, uh, I'll be working over, hanging out in the first light booth. We'll have awesome. a meat eater and first light booth set up, and yeah, but uh, yeah, man, I'll find in come say hi for, for sure. sure. I can't wait to walk around, man. I think, man, if y'all are listening to this, they are going to have. I mean, I, I'm not gonna don't take it like this, but anybody that's anybody is gonna be at this event, and it's they're projecting it's gonna be huge, and I'm very. very I excited. sure hope it is, man, because uh, you know we need it, right? Like yeah. these these kind of in person events for waterfowl we're already on a slippery slope kind of sliding down mm-hmm. before COVID and COVID just kind of was the final it was nail in the coffin and uh, yeah I and mean, I, I'd really like to see it all come back because man there's nothing nothing more fun and enjoyable than just standing around all day talking duck hunting talking shit with a bunch of guys that do not care about the same stuff you do I, I absolutely love expos I mean <laughs> I'm sure at some point yep. I'll get tired of going to them, but it's like when you can sit there and you can just talk about whatever, you can help a kid find a duck call that he likes. It's just, it makes you realize, I mean, just for, I guess our part in the hunting industry, it's just you're doing something that means more than just selling a duck call. Like you're you're going to yep. have an impact on somebody's life somehow. It, I mean, even if they just remember a few words that you said and take it to the field with them, and it's just – it's a far-reaching effect, and I absolutely love talking to these people. And 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 like you mentioned with COVID, I mean, it it just was the axe, you know, that just absolutely destroyed the in-person stuff um, with waterfowling. Yep. And um, for us specifically, you can't go in a Bass Pro or Cabela's or Academy or wherever that have a that has a call counter and blow a duck call anymore. And so, nope. you definitely see the effects on the sales of acrylic calls because 
who's really, I mean, I've done it. I'm sure everybody's done it. But you, you're very skeptical about spending $130, $150 on a duck call that you've never even blown and might not like. And so things like mm. this, you know, we're actually putting stuff in people's hands like, oh, this, I, I really like this. And, you know, we're tuning it up for them, like just personalizing right there in front of you. Um, so that that's, I mean, we do really well at Expos because of the personal touch that it gives. Mm-hmm. And I, just to see a bunch of old friends and meet a whole bunch of new ones. That's I'm the very biggest excited. thing for me, man, for sure. Yeah, you know, seeing guys that I haven't seen since, you know, honestly, since the beginning of COVID, um, that were guys that I got to see every year at shows. Um, you know, I'm excited to have that back. Right, yeah. Sure. And you mentioned you're going to be with the First Light booth. I I know they just came out with their waterfowl line. Like, yes, sir. Yeah, we just week, launched this it. This, yeah, we just launched it this week, and uh, we'll have all our new waterfowling gear there. Well, um. This is people our, to take a look at. Yeah, this is our extremely busy season. Like, we have been 90 to nothing, and I've been tuning calls for several weeks straight now. And, you know, tuning calls, you can kind of look up and watch a little YouTube. At least I do. Mm-hmm. And, uh, man, I, I, their ads came across, and, you know, I started watching their stuff. And, I mean, it's just cool that they're getting into it because, I mean, I've heard really good things about First Light and um, the base layers and stuff like that they make. And now that they're branching out into the waterfowl, um, a little bit more. Pretty cool to see. Um, definitely excited to look at it for sure. Uh, I know I'm like the arch enemy because I'm a Sitka guy, but you know it's always cool seeing new products and stuff in the industry like that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's uh, yeah, like you said, man. The base layers have had a reputation that preceded themselves for years. Right. Um, but it's always kind of been a more Western big game you know, oriented company. And, uh, I gotta say, you know, I want like, if people are at the show, come check it out yourself. But it's, I know I'm biased. I can't, (laughs) can't help that I'm biased, but the truth of the matter is, you know, I wore the heck out of that stuff all year long and, uh, all spring long and heck even fishing. And it's just, it's great stuff, dude. It really is. It's good stuff. Yeah, I mean, you can you can tell like if you you got the videos out that like break down every single product. I think. I mean, I've watched a couple of them okay. now, but I mean, you can just tell the quality that that it is. And I mean, if you're looking for quality stuff, I mean, you really only had one option of like high end quality stuff, and now you've got Super. you know yep. you've got really, I guess, two in the game now. Um, I guess you could say probably three with Shin Gear uh, as Mm-hmm. Come into the picture now too, but really the main players yep. in that are going to be Sitka and First Light that have the, you know the, the real good stuff. I'd say. Yep. 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 But yeah. Man. Yeah. Well, I'll you'll have to I'll have to check some of it out. I'm excited to meet you, man. It's yeah, be a good time. I just, it is going to be extremely good time. I just cannot wait. I've been I've been sitting here making um making some gosh, what am I trying to say? making some posters and stuff like that for, for social media, just helping them advertise it. Um, mm-hmm. Cause I have friends in little rock and you know, they're going to be there and trying to get, you know, I, I think if you're within a few hours, I think it'd be more than worth your time to come down. And I mean, like I said, every big name in the industry will be there. And so you'll get a chance to meet some really great people and try out new things and, like I said, put your put your hands on calls that you can't in a Bass Pro or a Shields or, or something like that. So I highly recommend yep. that y'all show up. But um, I told Sean before we actually hit record that we were going to get into some uh, decoy talk, some spread talk, stuff like that, because if you check out his Instagram, his, perspective, his decoy perspectives that he posts are just really cool to look at. And I want to kind of get, you know, dig into the mind of Sean Weaver about you know, different situations and what are you thinking and why are you doing what you're doing? Because, I mean, like I said, when I first started out, I had six decoys. I would throw them in front of me and I'd kill my limit. But nowadays you've got, you know, birds being shot at from Alberta all the way down to, you know, Louisiana. I mean, they see the same things countless times. I mean, even though they can fly 
you know, hundreds of miles, you know, in one go, I mean, they're still seeing a lot of the same stuff. And yep. I mean, just, just kind of, I guess, give me the baseline of like, yeah, your situation. If, if you, you know, just a, just a slew like a, a pothole, I guess if you're in South Dakota, just a pothole, you yep. know, if it's corn or, or even just like sagebrush around you, just what, if it's a pothole, like, what are you looking at when you're scouting um, when you're scouting this specific place, like what are you keying in on to know, okay, this is where I want to set up. This is, you know, I want this win. Yep. If we have this win, we're going to do this, you know, just kind of walk me through like your thought process, I guess, because I'm really interested to hear it. For sure. Uh, so, you know, I have to add like a disclaimer that sometimes it's a little bit influenced, not just by hunting, but by cameras, right? Right. Because um, a lot of my hunting these days gets done with cameras around and camera guys and avoiding lens flares. And frankly, that's been, you know, I, before I worked for Meat Eater, um, I was a producer of the Grind Waterfowl TV. And, um, you know, I've worked in the video side of the waterfowl space for, for quite a while. And, uh, spent a ton of days every year seeing how waterfowl interact with the decoy spread and hunters from kind of a third person perspective, but still being close. Right. right. Yeah. I was, I was always kind of the guy that liked to run the long lens as we would call it. Um, you know, sitting 20, 30, 40 yards away from the decoy spread, um, filming types of birds working. And that gave me, I think a very unique perspective and experience, of how, you know, seeing how waterfowl work a spread. Um, and if, you know, if there's anything I really now look at, but beyond, of course, the baseline, the birds are there, right? right. <laughs> they have that. Given. Yep. Um, what I really then look for beyond that is shadows and what my wind is going to be. Um, ideally, I'm always going in knowing, hopefully, going into a spot as I'm scouting it, knowing what my wind the next day is going to be. You'll see in a duck lore episode that'll be coming up, um, it's the third episode of season two in Missouri. You'll see us find all these birds using a spot on our very first day of scouting and we don't hunt it for three days because the wind and the sun was never in combination right for that spot. Right. Um, ideally for me, what I want is I want to be able to hide in the shadow mm -hmm. and also just not have the wind in my face. I don't care if it's um, perfectly sideways wind you know, uh, talking more specifically is easy. That, that spot was, um, you were faced pretty much straight east. And the birds were flying, you know, mid to late morning. So the sun would get up to about the south. And the wind was out of the west. So you're still kind of in the shadows in that spot of this tree we're hidden in, where we kind of build this man-made driftwood blind we're kind of hidden in the shadows of this tree and the birds are coming straight at us but all they see is shadows in this driftwood right they can't actually ever get sun right on us right and again part of that's because the cameras are there you don't want lens flares but you know the other side of that too is just like it's you know you think about that first light flight every morning when it's dark and those first birds in the morning can decoy so good when it's nice and dark in the woods or in the marsh or whatever else still and you're in those shadows and then the sun comes up and starts exposing things and all of a sudden the, the birds quit decoying so good um, and I don't think enough hunters quite always consider those shadows enough Here's a here's another reason I think that like using shadows is is so important. 
in Wyoming last year, we hit in a fence line and it's a, I mean, it's a bare fence line. It's a bare wheat field and we're using A-frame style blinds. We're using the Lucky Duck two by fours. And so we're sitting in the, the fence line with no actual cover and we're sticking way up. Well, you know, 20 years ago, that would have been like taboo to do. Even 10 years ago when the layout blinds were still kind of rocking and rolling and they were the peak of how to hide. Right. Um, but man, we just brushed the heck out of that thing till it was like 10 foot thick with just tumbleweeds and, and kochia and all kinds of different grasses and tree limbs and tumbleweeds and everything to really just have a bunch of different shadows cast all over the place. Right. Now, yeah, there's a bigger shadow that kind of casts out into the field from the blind. But as far as on a micro perspective, up close, when those birds were over the decoys looking, you know, at what would be us, at what would be the suspicious thing, there's no way for them to really see us because we're just in all these shadows. And, um, you know, it's, kind of the whole plan on everybody keeping their face down you're sitting in a you know big big wooden blind on the edge of a rice field in arkansas everyone tries to tuck their face behind a beam or put their face down or put a face mask on and really you know to me what all that is is trying to find a way to hide in the shadows right so so to me that's like always the the root of how i'm going to try to hide in a spot which ultimately determines what my decoy spread looks like. Yeah, I mean, um, decoy spread is really hard to talk about because I I don't know that in the last you know five years or three years per se that I, when I that I kind of you know I, I will say I've learned a lot and you know seeing why birds do what they do when they do how they do it and now I'm constantly moving decoys like kind of hard to talk about you know. This is how I set my spread, but, you know, after the first two volleys don't do it right, it's going to get changed, you know. So, I mean, that, that's yeah. kind of hard to nail down. I mean, obviously, you know, I mean, the J the J shape, very common. Um, you know, you want to cut them off and stuff like that. But, mm-hmm. I mean, I guess from what you're saying, the first of all, the scout. The scout's the number one most important thing. you got to have birds. If you don't have birds, it doesn't matter how well you're hidden. But if you have birds, the second most important thing is definitely the hide. And um, it's not something yeah, that you I mean, can take lightly. They'll decoy to one single decoy if they have absolutely no suspicion of people being there. Exactly. Right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, coming from a calling company, you know, like I've told so many people, some of my best hunts, I've never picked up a duck call because you didn't have to. Because you were hidden in the shadows on a sunny day, and the wind was right, and there was birds, and you were where they wanted to be, and they saw the decoys or the spinners, and they sucked in like a vacuum, and I didn't ever get to pick yep. up my call, and I hate that because I love calling so much. <laughs> I love you know working birds yeah. and hitting them on the corners and seeing them just you know swoop back in mm-hmm. and cut a corner super hard. I love it. I mean, I just could not eat that up anymore. Like that's. That and watching a dog work are top two. You know, pulling the trigger. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. I've not shut enough ducks in my lifetime to ever to you know to stop at this point. Um, but you know, I can definitely take a few volleys off to watch a dog work and and to actually you know work birds down yeah. into a hole. Like that's that's my biggest thing. But yeah, yeah. the hide yeah, okay. is just like I'm sorry I cut you off, but just one qu- more quick thing about that. It's like trying to relay that to some friends and some guys. It's like you 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 aren't understanding that we can be in a great spot, but if you are not willing to put the effort in to brush blinds, lay out blinds, a frames, if you're not willing to, you know, actually stay behind the tree, you know, when you're supposed right. to, like it's not gonna matter. Because Correct. the smallest thing will flare a duck. Real ducks flare real ducks. I mean, <laughs> I, I, yeah. you see it happen all the time. So, I mean, oh, yeah. perfection, I mean, you're never going to reach it, but to be as close as perfect as possible in your hide is, you know, obviously the most yeah. important thing. But go ahead with what you were saying. Oh, no, you're good, man. Um, 
Yeah, I just think, uh, you know, one last thing on the hide subject, and I'll talk about some decoy stuff, but the, like with the hide, I also think guys kind of get locked in what's easy and what's convenient and don't, and comfortable, frankly, versus doing something a little out of the box. You know, in Arkansas um, in January, uh, this is a duck lore episode coming up as well. We, you know, we had this this dike on the edge of a rice field that there was no real good spot to like set up a blind or try to hide a blind, and there's some pretty good sized trees on it with low hanging limbs. And honestly, man, what we ended up doing was hunting like turkeys. As far as we just sat on our butts, tucked up against the base of those trees. And yeah, the shooting was hard sometimes because we're like shooting through these low hanging tree limbs that are between us and the decoys but we were hid and you you would never even question doing that for a turkey of course that's how you try to hide from a turkey but why not try it for ducks you know they got just as good a vision just as good and and i know i have a buddy and i know he'll hear this episode but i mean it's it's more than one buddy but i'm thinking of one Mm -hmm. in particular i mean they're sitting there breaking limbs off and i'm like they're like i gotta get a lane to shoot i'm like no you don't I was like, you, you can shoot through the through branches, like it, you know, unless it's like a, a, you know, arm sized branch. I mean, that's in front of you, like right in your face. You can shoot mm-hmm. just because there's a few twigs hanging down in front of you. You can shoot through that and and kill yep. ducks. I mean, it's not about having a wide open, perfect shooting lane. It's it's about and you know what, if- yeah. If, if you can't shoot through it and hit them, you'll shoot through it and hit them on the next shot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're going to make a hole regardless. But, yep. you know, if you're breaking off whole limbs that have a lot of hide, I mean, you're doing more damage than good. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. you know, I understand everybody wants to shoot. You know, that's that, that's why you go out there and do it. You want to kill ducks. But <laughs> For sure. you ain't going to do it if you ain't hidden. I mean, that's that's just is what it is. Yeah. I mean, and, and yep. honestly, I, I used to be that guy that – I'll just stand behind this, you know, this buck brush bush, <laughs> you know, and that, that'll be good enough. But like I said, the more I've learned, the more I've experienced and seen things, it's just like that, that is something that cannot go. You, know, you can't be lazy doing it because nope, nope. you'll get away with it a couple times. First light, you know, if, if you got you know, oh, yeah. right shadows casted on you where you're not being hit by sunlight, you can get away with it sometimes, but it, uh, if you want to finish ducks in your face and and do it right, you've got to be hidden. I mean, it, that, that, and that's mm-hmm. from an A-frame blind in Saskatchewan all the way down to behind a tree in Arkansas. I mean, it does not matter where you're at. Which, if you're you know hunting timber in Arkansas, it, it, hiding in there is very easy. I mean, you really just mm-hmm. work the tree with the duck. I mean, that's that's all you right. have to do. I mean, you don't really have to worry about brushing anything in. Um, now mm-hmm. I don't like to have my pack and my gun bag and stuff like that on the same tree that I'm on. And I say that because mm. if they, in my opinion, and I don't know if this is factual, if, if, if you're calling at the ducks, which I always blow the duck call, like I'm never going to go hunting and not be the one that's calling. Like I will always call, but if they're looking, you know, if you're working the tree and you're blowing this call and they get into a certain lane where they're looking down at where that call is coming from, and they see your silver, you know, thermos. I mean, right. They see a square bag. Right. Exactly. I mean, so I, I just tend to put it, you know, 10 yards away from me. I mean, I keep enough shells on me that, you know, I can shoot sure. what I got and then clean up cripples if I have to, and I'll walk back to the tree to get some shells, you know, after the fact. That, that's just, a, I guess, more of a – Opinion than you it know is what actual. I've, what I've taken a light a liking to is uh and full disclosure, Meat Eater owns this company, but um, there's a company called FHF Gear, and they make what's called a chest rig. It looks like a fanny. It's like a tactical looking fanny pack. Yeah. That's it, it's almost like a bino harness that mounts on your chest, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they've got some shell holders that string on the outside of that and you can keep your phone pair of gloves all your shells you know any extra things like a dog 
remote or whatever else you need in there with some shells on the outside. It's like, man, you don't need the whole blind bag out on your tree or wherever you're trying to hide, wherever you're trying to actually hunt. Like if you need stuff like snacks and thermos, whatever, you can go walk and grab it. But as far as what you need immediately for the hunt, you can keep a lot slimmer profile by just keeping it all on you rather having stuff strewn out all over. I mean, there's a lot of situations that I've hunted in my lifetime that you did not have the bag with you because you couldn't. Right. Because you couldn't keep it on your back on your back couldn't carry it couldn't carry it and there's not one tree that will or a little bush that will hold up the weight of the pack you know there's nowhere at all to put it and so i mean you carry what you think you need and if you have to take a hike back mid hunt you know it is what it is but that's you know that's just like i said it's probably more of an opinion than factual but i just i mean i working ducks like i think i've picked ducks up from you know, that were about to light 20 yards away on the other side of the decoys and pick them up and put them in in the hole, in the shooting hole that we wanted them in just by calling. So mm-hmm. to, to say that a duck doesn't know where the sound is coming from is not true because a duck, just like a turkey, probably knows exactly what location you were calling from. Oh, yeah. I mean, heck, dude, I, I'm sure you've seen the same video, but it's forever ingrained in my mind a video of duck commander boys years and years ago calling some gadwall up off the water about 100 yards away that come then light right in front of them they actively called those gadwall up off the water that then fly straight over to where they're at it's like they definitely can hear where that's coming from 100 percent. and a gadwall in and of itself is a hard enough duck to call because they're <laughs> either going to do it the first yep. time or they're going to tease you for about 10 passes and leave you alone <laughs> So, yeah, while you burn every other group of birds around. Exactly. I can't tell you how many times I've done it. They're going to they're gonna do it every time, and no matter how many times I witness it, I'm still going to try them. So, <laughs> Yeah, oh, for sure. Cause they, and the worst part about the gadwall, right, is that they come breaking down looking so good. Mm-hmm. They're, they're about the breaking best, best decoy so duck there is besides a shuffler. <laughs> oh, I mean, they are they're sucking just like they – almost like a widget in the field. Like they're just eating it up and then they'll get to 70 and screw off and then go swing in another 10 times. And you're like, all right, well, it's one of those gadwall days. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's not the fun kind of gadwalls today. And maybe they even have better vision. I don't know. Maybe they see something and they're just <laughs> like, eh, they do just act goofy. Yeah. They just act different. I mean, pintails will do it. Shovelers will do it. I mean, Mm-hmm. Gadwall, like you said, widgeon. We don't have just a, a butt ton of widgeon here, but I mean, I've killed several, and I mean, the, most of the times they're just in with other ducks, so you can't really even tell what you're working when you're working them. But um, yeah, I know you said it, you said you're yeah, on the the production team for the grind. Is that what you said? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was the I was the producer of the grind waterfowl TV so, for four and a half years. Big Dakota decoy guy then. Yes, sir. Yep. <laughs> yeah, yep. We're, we're good friends with them over there. Um, I actually loaded our enclosed trailer up with God knows how many bags of flocked mallards just the other day, and just that just nice. made it worse. My duck depression, just loading all the mallards up in the trailer, <laughs> knowing that that trailer was just going to sit there for several more months. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Bill. I, you know, I look at Bill as a. He's a great friend and a mentor to me. I learned a lot over the years hunting with him and 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 seeing him hunt the Missouri River, how he hunts it. You know, mm-hmm. uh, talking on decoy spread specifically, uh, a trick that I learned straight from Bill, and it was just kind of putting two and two together. Like it was like I had two and two, and wasn't putting the plus sign between. Mm-hmm. you know bill's like hey idiot put the plus sign between uh was for years i would you know set up my decoy spread hunting bigger water let's say rivers reservoirs bigger lakes mm-hmm. um i would set all my duck decoys square in front of the blind and then i would have my goose decoys kind of set off to the side right all right like oh maybe we'll see some geese today and so often, those ducks would go decoy on the edge of my spread. 
and I would, but I never put two and two together that the reason those ducks were decoying to the edge of the spread was not because they were light and short, but because they were actually decoying directly to those goose decoys. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Bill, Bill will center his, you know, you go watch some episodes of the grind where he's hunting on the river and see him put goose decoys smack dab centered up right in front of the blind. His, his main thick, like centered part of the spread will actually be goose floaters and his like perimeters will be his duck floaters. Mm. And, uh, man, it works. It yeah. just does. It doesn't work all the time, but it works a lot of the time. And, uh, that's both a hot tip right there and also, you know, a testament to what I've learned from that guy. Cause there's nobody, and you can say this easily, there's just nobody out there that's hunted the Missouri River as long and as hard as that guy has. No, I mean, that's, I'll be honest, man. I, I'm, I don't even think it was two weeks ago I was watching a video of him and, I don't know if you were still the uh, producer for it or not, but it was him and an old buddy. He is just two guys, and they were in a, you know, their uh, boat blind. And yeah, was it the Golden Pond Greenheads episode? It, it was. Yeah, that's yeah. I filmed that one. Yeah, that was it. Yeah. So, I and I I didn't even look at the decoy spread and that. I'm gonna be honest. I was just that was just kind of something in the background that I was looking up. I think uh-huh. I was doing laundry in my living room. I was looking up watching it, but. Yeah, for sure, man. It's yeah, the Dakota decoy, man. It, it's, I mean, I'm just for, talking about as far as posture and a duck decoy because I mean we we don't hunt too many Canada geese down here. Um, they just no, for whatever right. reason kind of stop Missouri. I mean, that's really you know if you're going to mm-hmm. kill Canada's, it's a lot of times you know you're going to go north of Missouri, yep. right? So, but the posture and those then those decoys are unmatched. I mean. It looks like an actual Drake Mallard sitting on the water, man. It, it just does. It does, and there's they they've got it nailed down. I can tell you that because that's that's all I hunted with as far as duck decoys last year was Dakotas, and man, I, we actually had some replacement heads because I mean those <laughs> Dakota decoys that I were hunting with were Buck Gardner himself, like his decoys, yep. and you know they still belong to the company, and so I was using them, had replaced the heads, put new flocked heads on it. And, Man, did they ever get it right? They look phenomenal. Yeah, yeah, no, they they do. They just work. They just look good. Like I've got some fully flocked uh, Dakota Mallard floaters that are at this point um, solid four years old, and yeah, they're beat up. But you go put them out there twenty yards, and it looks phenomenal, right? Like. Yeah, holding it in your hand, you're like, okay, those are beat up. Some of the flocking's coming off. Right. But I, I've never begged them. I just throw them in and out of the boat. And, you know, last year hunted 72 days or whatever over them. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're, I mean, they're beat to sin, but they still just look good. The posture, like you said, it's just hard to beat, man. It's almost like it gives you an extra level of confidence hunting with a with good stuff. <sighs> you know, that's what decoys are, right? Let's, I mean, calling a spade a spade here. Um, if you're just a young guy starting out that doesn't have a bunch of money to go shell out for nice duck decoys, you shouldn't go buy fully flocked Dakotas because you're only going to be able to afford six of them or you know, 12 right. of them. I was that guy. But I've been there. You're right. We all were, right? At some yeah, point, like, sure. you know, we were buying hot buys off Craigslist. Mm-hmm. And if that's all you can afford to do, like, that's what you got to do. You got to build out your decoy spread. For sure. But as once you have your decoy spread established and you're, you know, oh, I can afford to buy another dozen this year, two dozen this year, like, it does, it, man, it's true. It just does give you like that like you you never are the guy that's sitting there blaming what your decoys look like for your hunt yeah. you actually blame the things that matter right you blame the, the hide, the hide. Yeah, there you, you, go. Blame, for sure, man. you blame the things that should matter yeah I mean, if, if you got some good looking decoys out there i mean but like you said man if it comes back to if if you're on the x man you could be out there with flamingo decoys i mean not really but but seriously like 
Oh, yeah, but, I mean, you know it. The guys, some of those boys on the Mississippi River, uh, Wisconsin and Iowa especially, man, the bulk of their decoy spread is black black milk jugs. Yep. Real fit lake, same thing. Yep, yeah. Same down here. Yeah, you're looking for visibility more than anything, right? You're looking for first getting their attention, and then you're looking for realism. Yep. And you're right if you're on the x if you're really on the spot you can be out there with dang near anything but but it is nice to have quality stuff i mean and and that's just the (laughs) waterfowl world today i mean we i mean a 15 dollar duck call does the same exact thing as a 150 dollar duck call and Mm -hmm. but we want the custom engraving we want the pretty pearl color and we want all that and you know it is what it is i mean i mean i i'm i'm definitely that guy uh that I like, yeah. I like good stuff. I mean, I mean, who doesn't? But I like, you know, I know you're a first light guy, but I'm Sitka guy. Like I, I like to have yep. the Sitka gear. I like my Dakota decoys. I like my all acrylic Bud Gardner calls. Like, you know. Yep. Well, <laughs> I will say, the the technical gear, the as far as clothing goes, that is one where it's like, man, that's like the first place to not skimp if you can afford to, right? Yeah. Because if you just go buy the hundred and twenty dollar set of waders every year, you, you know you're going to be soaking wet by the third weekend of duck season. Exactly. And <laughs> and you're going to be miserable, and you can't hunt as hard and as long when it's cold all the time. And some guys are, I think some guys are just tougher than me. If I'm going to be honest, <laughs> um, but dude, I do I do like just having good clothing because. Yeah. We, you know, we sat out in Salt Lake last year in Missouri and, and Wyoming in some absolutely brutal conditions. You know, one day we're hunting in Wyoming, it was negative 18, uh, wind chill to start off the day. And, you know, that's some, that's some serious cold. And we were there sun up to sundown our second day. I mean, we sat all day out in that field and. I'm sorry, but you know, and, and, and if you can't, if you can't buy that stuff, you can't buy that stuff, but you wouldn't have sat there all day in blue jeans unless you're one tough SOB. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I've worn Sitka for one year since I started working here I started wearing Sitka and I mean, the windproofing is, is more to me than insulation because if the wind gets to me, I'm, I'm done for. I mean, you stick a fork in me, I am done. If the wind gets to me, <laughs> there's nothing that's going to warm you up, but a heater. And i have maybe hunted over a heater twice in my whole life. So, you know, that that's the big thing to me. But, I mean, quality gear, quality decoys, quality hide, I think would be the emphasis. But we are – Quality hide, we, boys. <laughs> we are over quality an hour hide. now, so we're going to go ahead and wrap this one up. But I definitely learned a whole lot from you. And, I mean, what a what a great talk, man. I just I feel like we hit so many awesome points. Conservation, hide, decoy spreads. I mean, that was all around great one and it probably made my duck depression just a hundred times worse. So appreciate that. <laughs> oh no, no. Well, you know, we'll we'll have to do this again, man. I, I like just getting to talk real duck hunting with folks. Yeah. You know, it truth is we've all heard of a whole ton of podcasts that are you know, very, um, you know, it, part of getting to know a guy on a podcast is it that is. it can almost have like an interview element of yeah. not just actually talking duck hunting. Right. And it's, yeah. it's hard to avoid that, but when you can get past that and just talk real duck hunting, like we would, if we were sitting having a nice cold beer together, that's right. Um, you know, that's, that's worth it and fun. I think that's what this was for me anyway. Yeah, for sure. And I'll have my hey, podcast. What kind of beer do you guys drink in Memphis? Like, if you were to say what's the what's the pick of the litter on domestic light beers in Memphis, what is it, Bush? Uh, Bud? I mean, man, all my friends are ultra. I mean, that's. Ultras? Yeah. I mean, you get down in Mississippi and it's probably Bush, probably Bud Light. But uh-huh. I, I would say ultra. I mean, most of my friends, Miller. Miller's another one. Um, yeah. But, you know, if it's cold, it's kind of hard to turn it down when it's this hot outside. Don't really matter what it is. We're right on the edge up here of, like, Coors and Bush country. Right. Like, you, eastern South Dakota, 
definitely like bush country. Then you get into western South Dakota and Montana, you're in Coors country. But yeah. I was just now I don't mind a Coors banquet, a yellow jacket. I don't mind one of them whatsoever. So yeah, you just better run an extra half mile at the gym in the morning. Yeah, no kidding. And I don't do much <laughs> running, so I'll tell you something, but. Man, I will have my podcast gear at Little Rock, so maybe we can hop on it again and just have a whole roundtable good talk with, with several folks. So, Yeah, well, it'd be good. It'd definitely be good to shake hands and see y'all. Maybe we can make that happen. This for week. sure, man. So, but, I don't know how busy we all plan on being. but I hope we're so busy we don't get to meet until after it's over. But, you know, that's exactly right. You know, if it doesn't happen that way, you know, oh well. But I appreciate y'all for tuning in, man. I hope y'all learned as much as – as I did, and and y'all, uh, y'all keep up with the duck lore, man. I'm I'm excited to see the new episodes, and keep up with Sean and Meat Eater. Listen to his podcast and stuff, and I mean I'd enjoy the Meat Eater podcast, even even the stuff that's not waterfowl related, because I mean he's just mm-hmm. a, such a good conversationist, and you know even like this podcast went very smooth, you know it was very smooth. So, but thank you again for hopping on the podcast with me, and thank you everybody for listening. You got it, man.